Hi listeners, Jason here. We are excited to finally announce registrations for the biggest psych health and safety community event ever. The inaugural The Psych Health and Safety Conference will be held at the Sofitel Wentworth, Sydney, June 19 to 20, 2024, and offer concurrent virtual attendance. It'll feature live podcast recordings with OG researchers, including Christina Maslach and Michael Leiter of Burnout fame, Psych Health and Safety USA podcast host, I, David Daniels, Australian super experts, including the likes of David Burrows, a special 10-year anniversary integrated approaches to workplace mental health panel with authors Tony LaMontagna, Angela Martin and Kat Page, hand-picked case studies from organisations doing it well, and a very special interview with plaintiff Zaggy Kozarov by Catherine Donlop on that High Court case which we previously covered on the podcast. This event will sell out. Get in quick to secure tickets at early bird prices for the two-day conference, pre-conference masterclasses and the VIP dinner. The first 200 in-person registrations also get a copy of her latest book, The Burnout Challenge, signed by Christina Maslach herself. Find out more and register at www.psychhealthandsafetyconference.com. Now, on to this episode. Over the course of the history of the United States, labor-related laws have created protections from some of the exploitation that was commonplace at the founding of the country, and many of those protections remain in place today. However, there are still limits to what the law can do. This is especially true as it relates to protection from psychosocial harm. We'll talk about some of the protections and limits with a practicing employment law attorney up next on this episode of the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. As workplace mental health has become a global priority, there's a greater focus on addressing psychosocial hazards. Each episode, we look at psychological safety from an occupational health and safety perspective. Let's talk psych health and safety. Welcome to this week's Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. I'm your host, Dr. I. David Daniels, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Each week, we seek to increase awareness of the importance of psychological health and safety by learning from the lived experiences, research, and expertise of our guests, as well as advocating strategies to reduce harm and minimize vulnerability to psychosocial hazards in the American workplace. So as I've mentioned over the course of the last year and a half of this podcast has been in existence, there's no law in the United States like approximately 30 other countries in the world that directly addresses psychological health and safety. However, there are other laws that can protect a worker from certain psychosocial hazards. Uh, While, for example, the, the use of microaggressions Overt insults, low-level incivility, hazing, and bullying may not be technically illegal, but when these types of behaviors form a pattern that can be proven as discriminatory toward a protected class or a person engaged in protected class activity based on federal, state, or local laws, there very well may be uh, a course of action that's deemed, uh, there may be a course of action that can prove that this was illegal, either in a civil or criminal court. On the other hand, there are limits to what the law can do. Based on the time it will take to process the claim, the energy it will take to work through the administrative and legal processes, and uh, just the, the, the mental state of the person who's been exposed. So I want to say before, as we get started, uh, as my guest is an attorney, don't take anything shared during this epi- episode as a substitute for specific situational legal advice from a licensed attorney in the jurisdiction where the issue you might uh, be concerned about has occurred. Uh, This is not an endorsement nor criticism of the legal environment of any specific organization or jurisdiction. So with those disclaimers, let's start with an introduction from my guest by my guest with this question. Who is Sherry Oyuremi? Hello, everyone. And Dr. Daniels, thank you for having me. I will start by echoing what you just said. I am not providing legal advice. I'm just simply providing legal information and it is not a substitute for speaking with an attorney about your specific circumstances. Um, a little bit about me. I am a labor and employment attorney here in Atlanta, Georgia. I practice exclusively employment law, meaning I deal with all things in the employment 
setting. I do serve both management side, so defense, as well as plaintiff side. So bringing those cases against employers and um, reporting those cases to agencies. Um, I started my practice in Canada. I am a Nigerian Canadian American and I started um, practicing law in Canada where there is, some would say, a more employee friendly um, employment set of laws. And that sort of framed the background of my practice moving here um, to Georgia. I feel like, or I like to tell myself, I have a view of best of both worlds. Georgia is um, not known for being employee friendly. I'll just put it that way. Um, jurisdictions vary state by state, even though most of the employment laws are federal. Um, the states get to choose how they will apply it and how much leeway they're going to give and how much credence they're going to give the benefit of the doubt to the employer versus the employee. Um, Georgia definitely fits in the latter of the two categories. Um, so that's sort of my background professionally and um, a little bit of personally about me as well. I live in Decatur here in Atlanta with my family and uh, we've been here two years now. So, so far, so good. Right on, right on. So, so yes, and we're going to definitely dig into some of those differences. It is, uh, I've had a couple of other attorneys on a podcast and not, I, I don't often get folks who have experience outside of the country practice, practicing law, particularly in a place like Canada. And, and a, a person who's into psychological health and safety kind of pines for folks from Canada since they had the first standard on the planet relative to this topic. But before, again, we get into more of those details, uh, what does psychological health and safety mean to you? When you hear that, what do you think of? Well, to me, and again, not referencing any statutes or any laws because there's just a dearth of that here. Um, for me, it just means that the employee feels safe mentally to perform their job functions. At the end of the day, the workplace is somewhere where um, production is the reason we're all there. It's the reason we're away from our families, and it's the reason why businesses invest billions of millions of dollars in capital so that at the end of the day, we can be productive. Um, in order for the human being to be productive, they are a whole person. And holistically speaking, you've got to take care of their, their body as well as their mind. So in my mind, I feel as though psychological health in the workplace has a lot to do with a holistic understanding of an individual with, of course, those business goals um, in mind. Okay, so uh, talk a little bit about the history of employment laws in the United States. And I, uh, from what you were sharing uh, just a little bit in your introduction, there's uh, so there's this big federal kind of uh, umbrella or bureaucracy, depending on how we look at it, that provides, you know, some rights that we have under the Constitution and some other federal laws that have passed around how, you know, the rights that we have and, and how that affects the workplace. But every state seems to be just a, a little bit different. So just, uh, again, I I, uh, I thought about going to law school, but I saw the LSAT and heard about people taking it. I went like, nah, I think I'll do some other stuff. So, uh, so, so again, talk a little bit about the history of employment laws in the United States. Sure, sure. And that is a loaded question, but I will do my very, I'll do my very best. Um, so as most of your viewers probably already know, there are various tiers. We have the constitution, we have the federal sector, and then we have state laws. We also have municipal and local laws. And at each level, you will encounter some level of employment laws. Um, the At the constitutional level, the only one that really comes to mind right now is section 1981 slash section 1983, which really pertains to acts that the government has done against an employee to, to, to violate their rights um, based on race. So if it's a government employer, it's section 1983. And if it is the private sector, it's 1981. And that is really the, the highest level I can think of right now that an employee would have the right to bring a claim against an employer on the basis of race. And this is still relevant to psychological health because as your viewers may know, when there is discrimination on the basis of race, the law already contemplates that there is going to be a mental health aspect to that. If there are damages that are physical and tangible, the law also contemplates that there's going to be emotional distress and pain and suffering. 
And we know the law does that because it has a section of damages that an employee can recover under just basis based on their emotional distress and pain and suffering. So we know that those that area is already catered to in the law. Next sector is the federal sector, and this is where the majority of employment laws are, especially if you're in a state like mine, Georgia, which has not passed very many employment laws, or for the most part, they defer to the federal sector. If you're in another state, such as California or New York, there is a large wealth of employment laws at that state level. But here in Georgia, really, we defer mostly to um, things like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which includes Title VII, as it's, it's probably called, popularly called, which protects from um, discrimination, harassment, retaliation on the basis of several protected categories, including gender, race, national origin, um, creed, color, um, gender, and now gender orientation. So Title VII is a big one, but there are many others, you know, the federal a Labor Standards Act, which is the one that gives us minimum wages, unpaid overtime, that kind of thing. Um, Age Discrimination and Employment Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which again is going to be your main protection for things that arise under the mental health sphere. Um, the ADEA does have several types of psychological disabilities that are recognized as disabilities under the ADA. So when you're dealing in the federal sector, that's going to be the main um, law that you rely on. When you get down to the state level, like I said, in Georgia, there aren't very many. And even the ones that we do have do stick with the federal standard. So if you're an employer, you're complying with the federal sector, for the most part, you're going to be in compliance with those laws in Georgia. Then we get down to the municipal level, where cities like Atlanta have done a little bit more. Um, for example, Atlanta has always protected uh, family status, which is something that the federal sector does not recognize. And there are other nuances like that. Depending on what city that you live in, um, you may want to pay attention to some nuances that are in your city. Um, so for the most part, that's the general overview. Um, I know you wanted a little bit of a, of a history, but that's the, that's the framework that we, that we work in. In terms of the history, of course, it hasn't always been that way. Um, a lot of these laws that I've just mentioned were passed um, in the 60s and the 70s, so they haven't been around that long. Um, the Fair Labor Standards Act, for example, I hope I get this right, but I want to say 1975, thereabouts. Um, Civil Rights Act, which is Title VII, that's 1964. Um, of course, these laws were updated over time in 1991. There was a um, amendment that really recognized that certain types of damages should flow from this discrimination, harassment, or retaliation. For example, the pain and suffering that I've just described, which really tries to cater to those unseen damages, those unseen hurts, those unseen losses um, that employees sometimes suffer when they've been the subject of harassment, discrimination, and retaliation. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's a it's an interesting, um, as you describe that, it is difficult to really get into a history. It is somewhat loaded <laughs> because it seems that many of our laws are the result of something happens, some individual or group of individuals don't like it. And then, and then we figure out some way to try to cause that not to happen again, or to make the, you know, the impact on people less. It, uh, I haven't seen, I can't think of many of our employment-related statutes that are actually forward-looking. Most of them are very, very reactive, at least in my opinion, certainly as a safety so you're, you're absolutely right. You're, yeah. you're absolutely right about that. A lot of these laws start off with a case, a specific case where somebody is wronged, and they either successfully lobby through Congress to have that changed, or they file suit, and the case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, and then we have a ruling that changes the way certain laws are interpreted. I'll give you a perfect example, Title VII. Title VII has always protected discrimination on the basis of sex. But for a long time, the question was, does sex include gender identity? Does it include sexual orientation? And on the federal level, the answer has always been no. Even though a lot of state laws have formally recognized it, um, and some federal EEO laws had recognized it, but Generally, the answer was no. In 2020, a decision was issued by the Supreme Court of the United States because an employee from Georgia 
had raised the issue and had litigated all the way up. Like this case took decades to bring to court, to bring to the conclusion that it did. And the Supreme Court ruled that sex in Title VII includes sexual orientation and gender identity. No need to amend the statute. The, the court says, as written, sex includes all of these things. Um, so sometimes a formal amendment is necessary and sometimes not. But but I agree with you. Um, I'm trying to think of a forward-looking amendment um, to any of these laws. And none come to mind right now. A lot of them are, are reactionary, unfortunately. Right, right. And, and one you mentioned earlier, I uh, so... <laughs> So as we, as the, the United States industrialized, so as we moved from a more of an agrarian kind of economy and culture to an industrial one, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, you had folks that were moving into urban areas, going into factories, doing these really, really hazardous, physically hazardous things. And uh, we had small kids that were going in there. We, it, it was just kind of a for lack of a better, it's kind of the wild, wild west. And slowly but surely, often, and often it was workers. It wasn't, you know, I, I, and I find this, you know, kind of kind of sad, but it, it tends to be the people affected and not the people doing the affecting who recognize this. It's, you know, so some some kid gets killed or some, you know, older person gets maimed or, and again, there's there's the lawsuit, there's all the conflict. And then finally folks come around and go, well, maybe, we shouldn't have people working 100 hours a week. Maybe we should only limit that to 40 hours a week. 40 hours. And yeah. uh, actually, that was in 1938, which is interesting that we are in 2023, almost 20. Well, by the time we uh, we talk to the, well, by the time this is released, we'll be 2024. So 2024, and we're still using a law from almost 100 years ago based on the number of hours that people work, which is just interesting to me it, it's just interesting it's, that we it's unique i mean europe you know that they've been they've been cutting those hours down i mean canada is not even at that level although i'll, I'll give you an example in, in canada it's not uncommon for women to take a 52 week maternity leave and for those 52 weeks they receive some replacement income through unemployment insurance and they will take that entire year and their spouse would then have the opportunity to take additional time as a secondary caregiver. Not something that we recognized here in the United States or that is available um, to many parents. Same thing with the hours of work. We just have not made many changes to that. I will give credit to some workplaces that are that are looking at different structures <laughs> that are looking for maybe the, the 10 hour work day and the four day work week and are trying to see whether that works for their own company. And of course, there's nothing preventing an individual employee employer from looking into these measures. Absolutely nothing. Right. Right. As long as you're in line with the Fair Labor Standards Act and you're paying minimum wages, um, you can experiment with this. So. I think you're right. It's going to be up to either the workers or some innovative employers to come forward with a new system that works and begins to pick up traction. Um, hopefully we don't wait for another pandemic to realize that um, the way we work can be tweaked a little bit to be improved or to be more flexible for some people. Right, right. right. Yeah. Well, you, so, so again, and, and you just mentioned it, I, I am of the belief that the pandemic didn't change much of anything but expose most of everything. It just, it exposed things that were already there. So again, businesses that were struggling, they were the first ones that didn't make it through the pandemic. Individuals who already had health conditions and whatnot, they were the first ones to be taken out by the virus. And, and, I, and I, I, I take that view, most disasters are that way. They make us more of what we already are and they just kind of highlight what we already are. And but 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 uh, it, it's it's like most things. There's a there's a very tragic side and there's an opportunity side, depending on which one you want to look at. And I believe that the opportunity side of the pandemic is that a lot of people stayed at home for a year and a half or two, really started to think about what was important to them and have now said, look, you know, if you can't be more flexible, I can find a new employer. <laughs> Particularly my, my Gen Z friends who have just, at least in my opinion, just utterly rejected this idea 
that you have to be, you know, that you can't have work life harmony. I, I was chatting with the, you know, with a recent guest and talked about it's difficult. Balance is an eh, interesting word, but at least they shouldn't be in total conflict with one another. And often they are. Back to the point though, it's because folks haven't taken the time to go, what's going to work for us? What can cause this workplace to be really beneficial and healthy and safe? And, you know, what, and, and, and you know, how is it that we can't find other ways to keep our attorneys busy rather than have them involved in a bunch of conflict <laughs> resolution all the time? Yeah. Yes. Whatever would we do with our time if not the human <laughs> nature, especially Americans are very, are very litigious? Um, I just thought of a very important um, employment law scheme that speaks to the lack of an attention to mental health. And this is going now back to my tears. I'm at the state level and this is workers comp. I don't know if you intended to bring this up later, Dr. Daniels, but workers comp is a state level issue. It's not one of the ones I listed on the federal sphere. And it specifically does not provide compensation for injuries to workers that fall in the psychological well-being, mental health bucket, whatever you want to call it, it must be an ailment that you can point to on your body. Um, I don't know if the federal sector will ever get involved. Workers' comp has been historically, traditionally, always a state law issue. Um, so I don't know if that will ever change. The pandemic certainly did not affect that, did not change that. And I don't know what it's going to take um, to cause people to look at that and start to think, okay, at what point do we need to include um, mental illnesses into the workers' comp rubric? And just in full disclosure, I don't practice workers' comp, so I'm not the person to opine on this, but I know that it's 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 a gap because right. I have had clients who've come to me with um, mental illnesses that they can trace in origination to the workplace context, but they do not have that coverage. There might be coverage under long-term disability, maybe short-term disability, but certainly not under the workers' compensation uh, scheme. Uh, so that's one brainstorming for you, for your guests to do. What What's it going to take to bring on that change? I, I so... This is a question that I think I may have at least I, I can opine on just a bit, but because in Australia, the primary reason why most people will go on workers' comp will be stress. And I believe that what's going to cause us to change here in the United States is competition. I do. I honestly, particularly, we have so many businesses, corporations, companies, however you want to describe them, business enterprises who started here in the U.S., but they now want to make money in places like Australia and Canada and the U.K. and Japan and Mexico and other places that do have psychological health and safety requirements in place. As a matter of fact, I'm consulting with a couple right now, a couple of companies. Again, they're U.S.-based companies that are now starting to work in Australia, and they're going, well, what is that psychological health and safety thing? <laughs> and they'll ask somebody like me, and I'll tell them, well, I think it's something you need to pay attention to because, it, you know, for an example, um, in Australia, you know, about a year and a half or so ago, they actually refined their psychological health and safety law and had, you know, some, you know, recent months ago, they fined a court system. I think it was Victoria, one of the court systems over there. They fined the court system, I believe it was $380,000 for having a toxic workplace that existed. They knew about it and they did nothing about it. So I say all that to say that I believe that competition will be the thing that will cause folks to go like, look, if we want to compete on the international stage, if we want to compete for the best, the brightest, uh, the, the folks who have the most options in terms of their skill levels, if we want to compete, then we're going to have to do something to create a psychologically, a more psychologically healthy and safe place for these folks to work. Otherwise, they're going to go someplace else. <laughs> That's what I yeah, think. Yeah, I, I totally hear what you're saying, and I'll give you the flip side to that. Imagine a state that decides to amend its workers' compensation plan to now include psychological health and safety. Will that state become less attractive to employers? Will that state be like many who are flo flocking to places like Texas, 
where they are very employee employer friendly and they don't have as many restrictions on businesses. Um, for example, Georgia, for example, it's Restrictive Covenant Act, which is the non-competes, non-solicits. They enforce those aggressively and that's attractive to businesses and they will move to Georgia or have the Georgia be the choice of law forum for their contracts because of that benefit. If you have a state that is now expanding the workers' comp scheme, will that take away your jobs, quote unquote, your employers, your your big businesses, your that's just the flip side of that consideration. Oh, and I'm sure yeah, you know absolutely. states are thinking about that. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I um th this is one of the reasons that I wanted to chat with you about this because I I I, I know as you said earlier you do practice on both sides of the conversation. And, and you know, and, and often I think that, you know, folks like me who are, I'm an unabashed uh, occupational safety and health person who is really more focused on what goes on with the workers because I believe, I believe that the more you focus on the human beings that you've employed, the better your business is going to function the more business you're going to get, uh, the longer term you're going to keep people. That's what I believe. I, I realize that not everybody believes that. I, I, I get it. But but again, I do um, I do believe that particularly generationally, it is going to be difficult to find people who will continue to expose themselves to unnecessary stress and you know bosses who yell at them and bully them and mistreat them. When there is an option, regardless of where that option is, and you know, because so many um, have the option now of being able to work remotely, I don't necessarily have to, you know, just be in a particular state. I can find a job virtually anywhere and work from anywhere. I can be a digital nomad these days. So I, I, again, I do. I mean, some of it's probably hopeful on my part. I do believe that that somehow those those kinds of market forces over the course of time will kind of encourage people, look, if you want to get the best, the best looks like this. It is flexible. It does give, you know, more. Uh, there are a lot of businesses now, and you might be able to tell me more about this, but I've, I'm hearing of businesses that are saying, look, you, we don't have a limit on the time off that you can take. And, I, and I, I'm hearing that that has a benefit on both the, the worker and the employer side. I, I don't know. Maybe you can share more about that. Well, <laughs> And because I wear both hats, I flip-flop a lot. So you have to go <laughs> along okay. with me. That's okay. Um, that is true. Increasingly, this started with the tech sector. Employers have this scheme of unlimited PTO. In other words, you can be gone for as long as you need to on paid time, as long as you're getting your work done and you're meeting your deliverables. So for the employer's benefit, you know, it's less time spent counting hours and managing all of that. It is a perk that employees want, so maybe they that helps their recruitment efforts and that helps their retention efforts. Um, these are ways that employers feel like it's a benefit. Now, for the employees, of course, it is good to go and leave whenever you want, but what they're also realizing is it means that you're on all the time. So as you can leave whenever you feel like you need some time off, you're also expected to be present whenever the employer believes that you need to be present. And sometimes that means you're working more than 40 hours a week. It means that you're, and a lot of these workers are um, um, non-exempt from, sorry, are exempt from the FLSA. So you're not getting more pay for this additional time that you're working. Your um, weekends are blurred into your weekdays. Your working hours are blurred into your off hours. Some employees are experiencing that as being the trade-off for this unlimited PTO program. And I'll just say something else. A lot of employees don't realize that when they take time off that's approved, for example, based on the unlimited PTO program, it doesn't mean the employer doesn't count it against you. It just means that your absence is approved, but they're watching. If you're often absent and you're often gone, it will count against you in the long run my potential clients will come to me and they'll say every single day I was out, it was approved. So they knew where I was and where I was going to be. And what I tell them is, but you were absent. And so you weren't there for those meetings and you didn't contribute to this project. And even though that time was approved, how much time did you actually put on the floor, putting your work in? 
So employees need to understand that sometimes it's a trap. The employer has given you just enough rope to hang yourself and you don't even realize it. So I feel like there needs to be some cautious, some caution there from employees who are jumping on this unlimited PTO. And also for employers, they should be transparent. If they're saying you can take unlimited PTO, but if we show that your performance is lacking or just your, your attendance, your presence is not as, as where it should be, we will count that against you, even though we're not counting every second, every minute that you're, that you're gone. So that's a complicated one for me. It's also new. So we, I, I haven't seen much litigation about it. I feel like those cases are going to come up and we'll have more guidance on it. Um, but for now, I am treading very, very cautiously. Do you need more psych health and safety in your life? Then head over to the Flourish GX Academy for several free on-demand e-learning courses. If you're an internal professional, follow Flourish GX on Eventbrite to register for any of our free fortnightly interactive webinars. Our flagship professional practice program is also exclusively available for internal professionals. The 12-week course blends theory, applied practice, and interaction with other professionals through live lectures and a monthly community of practice session. Find out more about all these learning opportunities or inquire about a bespoke in-house training at the Flourish DX Academy, www.45003.com. Now, back to this episode. Right. You know, so this... This whole discussion, and I really love where this is going, to be quite honest. <laughs> um, this whole discussion to me, though, is really another indication of the importance of both the employer and the employee recognizing that this really should be a balanced relationship as much as possible. So uh, w- w- when people get into an employment relationship with someone, with some company, some organization, it's this for that. It's what I bring, skill, talent expertise, whatever it is, for some, you know, set of set of benefits. And that we both ought to be clear about what we uh, what we are offering and what we are expecting. And I, and I think a lot of the, the, the conflict occurs is because neither side is real clear about that. I'm not really clear about what I'm looking for. And you're not really clear about what you're looking for either. So we wait until there's conflict to, you know, to kind of work our way through it. And, and, and again, I think there are opportunities. So this is why I believe as an occupational safety and health professional, that one of the most important things you can do is orient people when they start, is be clear about these are the things, for example, these are the things that will get you injured or killed. These are the things that will get your employment terminated from day one. So you're re- and, and frankly, if there's a long list of them, maybe I can decide not to work there at all. I mean, then people can make an informed choice because what tends to happen is, oh, this is a lovely place. You'll, you'll enjoy it. And we'll figure out as we go. <laughs> and as we get down the road, we start to figure out that, well, maybe I don't like it and you don't either. And then we end up in a thing, you know. So I, that, 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 that communication, particularly up front in terms of how the job is advertised, those interview processes and the orientations all in the front end, there's a lot that can be settled right at the beginning so we don't set up false expectations. So we give unlimited PTO, but there's an expectation of these are the types of things that we actually are tracking. (laughs) No, I I, I agree entirely. Every time I talk about employment law, at some point we talk about training. And in your case, you're advocating for not just training, but orientation on the front end. So training usually does happen at the beginning, but also at various points through the employment relationship. I think training is key, not just of management, but of supervisors and then of the employees themselves. And that way, we all have expectations of what we expect the workplace to be like, and everybody understands what they're supposed to be doing. Um, I'll give you an example. The EEOC just issued a new well, it's still in proposed form right now, guidance on harassment in the workplace. And um, a lot of employment attorneys believe that this is an expansion of what has typically been understood to be harassment in the workplace. The EEOC is just telling us that we're going to look at additional things that maybe we would not looked at in the past. I mentioned sexual orientation earlier and that being a whole new field it's going to be expanded upon. But some other things that we've had in the past, they're also expanding. For example, the employer cannot claim to have not known about harassment 
if the supervisor of the harassed employee was aware. If the supervisor of the harassed employee was aware, then the knowledge is imputed to the employer because the supervisor knew and had a duty to report it up the chain. In the past, we would have said, well, Joe Blow didn't report it and therefore we have no record of it. We didn't conduct an investigation. We had no knowledge. Um, now, if you can show that Joe Blow's supervisor was aware, the EOC would have expected that person to report it up the chain and then for the employer to conduct an investigation and get to the bottom of it. The EOC believes that this will be a better way of addressing harassment before it becomes this whole bona thing. And again, the EOC has in this guidance, they cite a very famous case which stated that harassment doesn't have to cause a mental breakdown before the employer pays attention to it. You don't need to have these catastrophic psychological um, illnesses before the employer pays attention. If an incident happens one, two, three times, that's enough. You don't have to wait until it's been going on for decades and decades. There, as a matter of fact, in this new guidance, it says that there's no magic number of incidents that'll constitute harassment. Sometimes there's a single case where the issue is so egregious that the employer must do something about it, even if it's just that one-off because it's so egregious. Um, so these are some of the changes that are coming. If this harassment guide becomes the new guide from the EOC, training is gonna be required. Employers will have to roll that out to their management team, their supervisors, even let the employees know um, so that everybody's on the same page. You know, this is, this is breaking news for me because to be quite honest, because I'm not an attorney, I had no idea. And, but what you describe actually sounds really important and really good. And, 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 and it sounds really good from a psychological health and safety perspective, because to, to your point, if the EEOC is, is saying that it doesn't take multiple uh, exposures to this behavior. So, so my, my definition, the definition in my research of a psychosocial hazard is a psychosocial factor traditionally in the workplace that is perceived or experienced by the person exposed as a threat that in turn influences their behavior. It's got to have all, it's got to be a perception, my experience, and then does it affect the way I behave? Because in the workplace, we don't know what was on your mind. We only know what you did. And, 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 and so if you did something or said something that another person perceived as harmful to them, that's, that's what harassment starts to look like. That's, that's, you know, that, I start to get a little nervous. My brain doesn't know the difference between, you know, it's either a threat or a reward. That's the way my brain, all brains look at it. And if it's perceived as a threat, then I start to get defensive when we have all these things that go on inside our bodies. And so what the EEOC is doing by providing this guidance is it might be helping to shepherd, you know, the kind of environment that I've been talking about, to be quite honest. That's, we have to start someplace. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And why should we wait until there's a knockdown, drag out, you know, either verbal assault or physical assault before we do something about it? Because, again, I also believe that a lot of the workplace violence that occurs actually started with something that was not, you know, physical at all. It started with someone feeling some kind of way. So, right. no, you I know, agree. they'll, yeah. And, and so there have to be things. So, uh, what's your, what's your, if you're reading the tea leaves, do you think this, you know, you think this actually happens fairly soon? You mean the guidance being the official? Yes, I, I believe that it will become the official guidance from the EEOC from, for harassment. Now, it was released um, September, end of September. It's been open for a month for comments. I believe they received over 37,000 comments on the proposed guidance. Of course, you can imagine both sides of the fence arguing for and against the expansion of the, the harassment guidance. But I think the EOC will affirm it as its new guidance. One thing to be careful with is that it's not law. So it's just an interpretation of Title VII and the other statutes that we've talked about already as how the EOC will interpret it. And as your readers or your viewers probably know, the EOC is the gatekeeper. You bring your ADA claims through the EOC. Sometimes the EOC will reject you at the intake state. And they'll say, you know, your case is not timely or there's no there there, whatever reason. 
they are the gatekeeper. They receive the cases. So what they're telling employers is, we will entertain these cases that have single incident harassment. If there is an incident of harassment that happened maybe a year ago and the employer has dismissed it as being untimely, the EEOC will say, well, there's one that happened more recently, identical to what happened a year ago. And therefore, we will investigate not only the recent incident, which is timely, we will also investigate this incident that happened a year ago because they are related, maybe the same supervisor, same set of facts, the same conduct, maybe the same comment repeated again. So it's just warning employers. If someone comes to you reporting an incident that happened a year ago, don't just dismiss it. Ask, has it been repeated against again recently? And in that case, you should investigate the two. It, it is very broad. It talks about bullying on social media, even though social media is not the workplace. But if your coworker is bullying you on social media and it's affecting your work and it's affecting your ability to go to work and work shoulder to shoulder with that person, then it becomes the employer's problem. And once they have notice of it, they need to investigate, they need to do something about it, even though it began online, which the employer has no control over. So it really expands the scope, expands the geographic area into you know the internet, um, even using private devices, as long as it has a nexus with the workplace, the employer could still be liable. Um, so I'm sure we'll we'll hear soon. I don't know how long it's going to take them to review 37,000 comments, but at some point um, we'll get notice that it's become the official guidance. Uh, as I said, this is just totally breaking news for me. I I I, I hope folks are paying attention to what you shared. You're the first person I've heard share it. It's probably out there, but I just hadn't heard it. And I I, I think that this could be a good thing, a good thing in the psychological health and safety community. I think it really could be. Uh, again, I believe that there is a nexus between the culture and environment of the organization. There's some things that go on there that may work for one group. They may work for the group who started the organization, who are in power in the organization, who have been there longest. And this is where the, the whole conversation about diversity and equity and inclusion come in, because when new people show up, whether they be new, younger, new gender wise, new ethnic, whatever, they just see it different. That's all. And if the organization does not adapt to the new view on things, then you end up in conflict. And that conflict ends up, you know, again, engaging folks like yourself. So so if you, you know, based on you know some of what you were shared, you, you have been sharing, if you were giving advice to employers about how to prepare for this type of guidance and how to create an environment that would be, regardless to what the law currently says, what do you think progressive employers, people who want to be on the leading edge, what should they be doing in your opinion? First, as we started off talking about, is training. We cannot overemphasize that. A lot of times employers get in trouble because someone who just doesn't know the rules says something that causes liability for the employer. And if that person is an executive or even a supervisor, you know, liability is almost a sure thing. So I would definitely put number one on my list to be um, training. Um, the second aspect, and this is just me, lawyers, they're different. I do advise my clients to err on the safe side. Don't take on necessary risks. It's just, sometimes it's penny wise, pound foolish. Take the time to listen to your team. As you said, we're past the industrial revolution. Now human capital is your greatest asset. So you need to invest in your team, do what you can to figure out what the issues are, what they're dealing with on the floor and do your best to meet that. So be proactive with those kind of solutions. Um, that would be definitely number two on my list. Just err on the safe side, be proactive to the extent, extent that you can afford it, try to be proactive. I know that a lot of these solutions are not, they're not cheap. And I know that the bottom line is the reason a company is in business. Um, but to the extent that it's affordable and you don't want to put that money into the attorney fees litigation bucket, um, do your best to, to be as proactive as you can. That would be definitely number two um, on my list that I would give to employers. And of course, when in doubt, I'll close it out with number three, 
seek counsel. Um, a lot of businesses, especially the smaller businesses, given the size of my firm, I do a lot of work with small businesses. They will not retain an attorney until they've received a complaint. And at that point, it's likely too late for us to make any meaningful changes. So to the extent that once again, you can afford it, seek counsel, um, speak with employment counsel, have them review your handbook, review your employment agreements, review your app, job applications, and just make sure that you are being as compliant as you can as you can be. Um, I think these would be my top three uh, advice that I would give to any employer. Yeah, and I, I, I often, so I, I heard this some years ago and I continue to repeat it, that money is only an issue in the absence of value. There is always, plenty of money to do things that are important. There are. And the question is whether or not it's important or not, and whether or not you really do value the humans that you bring into your company, your organization, your corporate, your whatever. Because somebody started it. Some, some human being decides, I have a business idea, and I launch out with this business idea. And as long as I tell people all the time, I do everything perfect for me. And that's where it stops. <laughs> it's perfect for me. It just isn't perfect for other people. So if there are going to be other people involved, uh, both I and that other person have to have a conversation about what's going to work for us. Not just what works for me, but what works for us, because we are going to enjoy the benefits of a bigger business. We are going to enjoy the financial benefits. We are going to enjoy, and we're all, we are also going to share in the, in the pain uh, if we, you know, if we're sued, if we, particularly if we lose, that's right. all, we're, that's going to be shared as well. So it's, do I want to invest a little bit right now, or might, might seem like a lot, to have my policies, my hiring practices, my, you know, my corrective action practices, just have them evaluated by someone who knows what they're doing. <laughs> now, I may be an engineer or a mechanic or a, a carpenter or whatever, but I, if I don't know anything about employment law, it certainly makes sense to engage someone on the front end <laughs> to look at the process itself and, and, and then have this ongoing relationship that says, you know, this year we had you look at our policies and make sure that we're square, but we're probably going to have to do it again next year or maybe right. two years because things change, you know, and that investment is really, to me, it's the same thing I say about physical safety. Uh, yeah, a pair of safety shoes may cost you 200 bucks, but a foot injury is going to cost you a lot more than that. A lot more than that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, or even yeah. a, a slip and fall that the person falls into a meat grinder, then what? Uh, the National Safety Council will tell you that an injured employee who requires medical attention is going to cost you at minimum $42,000. If the employee is killed, it's going to cost you $1.3 million. So... <laughs> Do the math. It's right. a lot cheaper to put the sign up and give the person proper shoes and mop up the water on the floor. It's just a lot cheaper. It really is. It really is. So, uh, so, so Sherry, this is, oh my, oh my goodness. I, so we had a whole list of questions. I'm not sure I forgot to most of them, but th this has been really, really helpful and informative to me. And, and like I said, just really enjoyed the, the ability to be on, you know, on both sides of these conversations and not to simply suggest that there's these, you know, that the employer's wrong all the time or that the worker's wrong all the time. It's what's going to work for both because both are going to benefit from doing the right thing. And so um, now um, as we start to wrap up the conversation, is there, is there anything that we've not talked about in the area of, you know, employment law and particularly how it relates to people's mental and emotional health and all that, that, that we didn't cover that you want to toss in at, as we begin to close. Maybe just some advice for the employee who's dealing with this type of issue in their, in their workplace. Honestly, the best advice I can give is to try to avail yourself of the options that the company provides. If they have a complete complaint procedure, uh, do your best to follow it to the T. Um, do your best to keep good documents. Um, keep the facts straight, um, make notes, because a lot of times time passes and our recollection is not everything that it was. Um, so I think I'll just close by giving that I, that advice to any employee out there who is, who is dealing with these issues. Um, sometimes there's some hesitancy to bring it forward. 
if you've you've tried that, you've tried braving through it, um, then you should now consider making a formal report through the, the company's process. And then, of course, you know, always look out for retaliation. It's illegal, and any any company will tell you that, and any good company will do their very best to avoid retaliation. Um, so that's just the advice I would give to um, employees um, not to suffer in silence if if they've you know they've braved it all they can make make that report and you know be honest be be um, as complete as you can and then leave it to the investigation to 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 go its course and hopefully come to a good resolution. Well, Sherry, thank again, thanks, thanks very much for uh, spending some time with me uh, again. This is. This has been wonderful, just wonderful. And, and again, the the, uh, the breaking news. I, I just I'm going to have to go and process that and read up more about it. <laughs> so, uh, if if folks would like to, um, they'd like to chat with you more directly on a specific situation, or want to get some, uh, you know, some some guidance in a particular area, uh, may want to retain you. <laughs> oh um, yes. How, yeah. So how how would people reach out to you if they want to do that? Well, honestly, I am on so many platforms online. If you just look Sherry Oluyemi, O-L-U-Y-E-M-I, put that in your Google search, your Yahoo search, whatever you use. Um, my information is, is splashed all over there. I am on LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook and X and all of the above. Um, so just put my name in your search bar and you'll, you'll be able to reach me. Well, Sherry, thank, thanks very much for uh, the, the time that you spent. This has been very helpful. and I. Uh, I think someone's going to benefit from hearing this conversation and seeing the conversation as well, just in case they have been watching. So uh, if if uh, you've been watching this episode on the Flourish DX YouTube page, please do like, subscribe and share with your friends. Uh, if you're watching or listening to the podcast for the first time, welcome. I hope something that you heard will bring you back in the future. Previous episodes of the podcast can be found at psychhealthandsafetyusa.com. Please become a part of the Psych Health and Safety USA movement by connecting to us on LinkedIn. And we certainly value uh, the next opportunity that we have to share with you. So until next time on the next episode of the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast, thanks very much. Be safe. Tune in each Friday for new episodes of the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. If you have a story or know of one that needs to be told, reach out to us on LinkedIn or send an email to david at id2-solutions.com or go to the Flourish DX website at flourishdx.com. We'll see you next time.